Welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, it's nice for me to be able to see people. So I'd invite that if that works for you. If, uh, Of course, if you have bandwidth issues, then um, fine to keep the video off. The Buddha once summarized his teachings like this. He said, I teach Dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, I teach Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. And that is a very simple summary of the core of the entire tradition. And so what I want to do today, and actually extend it in different ways the next two weeks, is to explore what that means and show that it's actually a guide for our, our entire practice our individual practice, how we bring our practice into our relationships, into our relational lives, our lives in community, and how we bring our practice into the wider world. That this teaching is the core, and it can be understood in a quite simple way. So I want to bring that out in different ways. You know, there are 2,600 years of Buddhist tradition, all sorts of teachings, all sorts of teachings, many of which are confusing or hard to understand or esoteric or obscure. But understanding I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha and applying it to one's own experience to one's own life gets at the essence and it can be understood and practiced very simply in all the parts of our lives. So that's my aspiration for today and then for the next two weeks and to uh, bring a number of different ways to practice. And I was, um, I was inspired to explore this in part by bringing the teaching up uh, fairly briefly with a group I worked with on Sunday. And it, uh, it got expanded over the last few days. And I thought this is um, a wonderful way to, um, wonderful way to bring out uh, supports for our practice. Okay, so let's go back to I teach Dukkha and the end of dukkha. So this is going to hinge on what dukkha means. And here, you know, as many of you know, we enter into some confusions. And in particular, we can enter into a lot of confusion because um, there are multiple meanings of dukkha in the teachings of the Buddha. And the most common translation of dukkha 
is suffering. And we often hear that um, the purpose of practice is to end suffering. But we can ask, what does that mean? In English, suffering isn't always very clear. It seems often analogous to, or synonymous, I should say, with pain. You know? But we aren't going to end painful experiences with our practice. Maybe we can have less because we don't get into trouble in the same way. But pain in general is a given of human experience, whether it's physical pain or difficult physical issues or difficult emotional experiences, difficult interpersonal issues, difficult issues related to the larger society. So initially, even in the main way that dukkha is translated, there can be some confusion. When we actually look more carefully in the text, we find that there are at least four different meanings of dukkha. And what I'll show is that the first three of them are often given by the Buddha, but using those accounts of dukkha, we can't make sense of what the end of dukkha means. It's only with the fourth meaning of dukkha that the end of dukkha makes sense. And I'll give a preview by saying that the fourth meaning that I'll unpack is dukkha as reactivity, as reacting by grabbing hold of the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant. And that is something that we can aspire to minimize and even end in significant parts of our life. So that's the, that's going to be the answer to the question. But I want to go through some of the other meanings of dukkha. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, we have, uh, we have texts, but they were written down, as many of you know, four or five hundred years after the Buddha lived. It was an oral tradition. And so the Buddha never went back and said, you know, folks, uh, I've been teaching about dukkha a lot, but I've got, I've got a lot of meanings, a lot of different ways I talked about it. Let's take some time and systematize it, Okay. Let's, let's work out all the different meanings and let's work it out so I only talk about dukkha so it makes sense to talk about the end of dukkha. Well, the Buddha never did that, right? And so we have these multiple meanings in the text. And I think this comes out in confusions, which often can be there with the core teachings. The Buddha never systematized everything, so we have multiple meanings. Okay, so... Listen for these different meanings that are there in the text and then ask that question, can we take this meaning of dukkha and make sense of the end of dukkha? And I would say for the first three, no, we can't. So here they are. The first sense of dukkha is what is unpleasant. This was the, probably the predominant meaning in what we would now call the Indian culture of the time of the Buddha, that dukkha is the unpleasant. And this is, if you've read any of the texts or some to maybe heard talks, you've heard 
passages where the Buddha says, um, you know, what is dukkha? Dukkha is um, the unpleasant. Dukkha is old age. Dukkha is illness. Dukkha is death, right? And that's, the, again, the most common meaning of dukkha in the culture. The actual etymology is uh, related to um, two terms. Du means bad and ka means empty. And it's often related in the original language to the axle of a cart which doesn't fit well. And so there's a bumpy ride in the cart. That's dukkha. Dukkha is having a bumpy ride in the cart of life. That's the that's the meaning. That's that you know again that would be the everyday meaning of dukkha in the original languages. And so again he would talk the Buddha would talk often about some of the painful aspects of life. And the way he talked about this uh, he gave a phrase he called this dukkha dukkha sort of unpleasant dukkha. And um, again, connected with uh, just fundamentals of life. There, there are painful experiences. But then we can ask, can we make sense of this being the end of dukkha? And I think we have to answer no. Unpleasant experiences continue. You know, the Buddha, when he was older, had headaches that were presumably unpleasant. He also sometimes, he also sometimes experienced a bad back. I really like that those stories were not censored out of the, the text, right? You can see the Buddha saying, Hey, Ananda, can you give the talk tonight? I, I'm not feeling so well, right? So that probably happened, right? But he, there probably was a different relationship to the painful experience than he had before he was a Buddha. You know, maybe, and this is what I'll, you know, come to later, maybe there wasn't reactivity. I would presume not. And then the second meaning of dukkha that we find in the text is called viparanama dukkha. And I'll, I'll have a slide in a few moments that shows these. And Carlita... Uh, develop the slide so you could into a PDF file that you can actually get from the chat and and use for yourself. So I'm so the spellings um, will be there in the slide. So it's V I P A R I N A M A dukkha, and this is something the Buddha also talked about. This is the fact that if we have a pleasant experience, because of impermanence, it will at a future time turn into an unpleasant experience. You know, I have a pleasant experience uh, eating uh, strawberry um, ice cream. And it might be pleasant when I eat it, but then maybe afterwards, maybe I've eaten um, too much strawberry ice cream and it becomes unpleasant. Or maybe I just say, you know, I'm, I'm full, the strawberry ice cream is gone and I still want more, and I have now an unpleasant experience, whatever. That uh, if we wait long enough, a pleasant experience won't last. And there'll be at some point an unpleasant experience. 
This is the second meaning of dukkha in the text. And again, we can ask, does that sense of dukkha make sense of the end of dukkha? And I would say no. That is simply a truth, as it were, of our experience, that there's alternation between pleasant and unpleasant, very ordinary, but that doesn't end. That keeps on going. Maybe we don't get hooked by that in the same way. That's another matter. But the dukkha itself doesn't end. And then there's a third meaning of dukkha, which is called sankara dukkha, S-A-N-K-H-A-R-A. And this is the fact that nothing of a conditioned nature, no thoughts, no experiences, can give us lasting satisfaction. That no conditioned phenomena can give lasting satisfaction. No job, no relationship, no possession can give lasting satisfaction, maybe satisfaction for a while, but not lasting satisfaction. And the teaching is obviously pointing to the advisability of not holding on to anything, not grasping on to anything that we like and thinking that will give us complete or endless satisfaction. And that, that's, you know, all of these are pointing to something, but we can ask the question, does that sense of dukkha end? And the answer is clearly no. The fact that conditioned phenomena will not give lasting satisfaction doesn't end. Maybe our, um, our way of behaving in relation to them, that might change. But the, the actual dukkha keeps on going. It's the way things are. So that understanding of dukkha doesn't make sense of the end of dukkha, even though it gives some pointers to what might be helpful. And so there is a fourth meaning, which I think will give us the, the answer. So it's good that I can say there's a fourth meaning that actually is the one that gives us guidance. And this is, I would say, the meaning of dukkha as reactivity, as the grasping and the pushing away. And this comes out especially in a teaching that I, that I often give. I probably give it a few times a year on Wednesdays. And this is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows or the two darts, which uh, many, many of you know. Many of you have probably heard me teach on this because I think it gets right at the core of the whole tradition. And again, it gets at it in a simple way that can really guide us and give us clarity in terms of the core teachings. And the teaching goes like this. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and he asked them a question. He said, practitioners, everyone, or how, how did he say it? Um, he said it something like this. 
people who are not practicing experience at times what is painful. Those who are skilled practitioners also experience at times what is painful. What's the difference between the practitioners? So he asked the question. He didn't get an answer. And so he said, okay, folks, I'll give an answer to my own question. And so he went on and he said, when a person who's a non-practitioner, and this can include us when we're not practicing, when, there, when a non-practitioner experiences what is painful, the non-practitioner, and I should back up, he said that having a painful experience is like being shot by an arrow. And he called that the first arrow. And he was particularly in the teaching referring to painful physical experiences, but we could generalize and talk about all sorts of painful experiences. Again, um, painful emotional experiences, uh, painful uh, mental experiences, you know, self-judgment, blaming oneself, blaming others, um, you know, grief, distress, different kinds of experiences, difficult relational experiences, being treated unfairly, oppressed, whatever. All of these, the Buddha said, and he was talking about the physical experience, but I think I'll generalize and say we all at times experience the painful. And the Buddha said this is like being shot by an arrow, and he called it the first arrow. And he said, in this, the non-practitioner and the practitioner do not differ. We are all, at times, shot by the first arrow. Where the difference is, is in what happens after that painful or difficult experience. He said, the non-practitioner will tend to shoot an arrow, and I would say at oneself or at others, as if this would help the situation. So I have a difficult um, physical experience, and I will maybe I'll tense my body, or I'll maybe I I tripped over a shoe that my son left in the living room, and I have physical discomfort, but I blame my son. That's the second arrow. I tense around it. You know, I'm treated. Uh, someone says something mean to me. I react right back. That's the second arrow. I can do that personally, and we can see that happening as well in groups and even in nations. Wars are typically, and conflicts are often about two groups or two nations shooting second arrows at each other. You know? It's not to say everyone's equal, but that is, is often the case. And so what the Buddha said is the non-practitioner will tend to shoot the second arrow in, and again, he, in, the, in the text, mostly talking about uh, the physical experience. And he said in that there is the experience of being shot by a second arrow. In the text, the Buddha said there's a, 
first arrow, which is more physical, and the second arrow is more mental-emotional. Again, I would generalize and say the first arrow can be in all sorts of dimensions, as can the second. But the, the idea is that with the second, we shoot the second arrow at ourselves or at others. You know, someone, again, says something I think is mean, I react right back with a mean statement. And a lot of life runs on people shooting two second arrows at each other, right? Or us shooting second arrows at each other. And what I'm going to say is that this gets at the deep meaning of the end of dukkha. Because we could say that the end of dukkha is the end of shooting the second arrow. It's not the end of the first arrow, but it's the end of shooting the second arrow. And I would call the sec shooting the second arrow reactivity. Some people you may hear, I've heard some teachers, and I used to do this myself, call the first arrow pain and the second arrow suffering and make a very clear technical distinction between the first and second arrow. And some people may do that and be very precise with the definition. I prefer reactivity partly because in ordinary English, pain and suffering are often used to mean the same. So I like to have a different word and, and really point to the end of dukkha as being the end of reactivity. So let's put that slide on now. This will give a summary of what we've just covered. That there are four meanings of dukkha. Dukkha, dukkha, the unpleasant, particularly the difficult experiences life. The Buddha talks about birth, sickness, old age, and death. When I ask the question, um, does this sense of dukkha end? The answer is no. Viparanama dukkha, the discomfort of change, pleasant turning into unpleasant. Again, um, this is one of the meanings of dukkha. We can ask, does this ever end? No. You know, that this is just the way life works. Same thing with the third. Sankara dukkha, no conditioned experience, can provide lasting satisfaction. You know, this, like the, the uh, other two, get out important aspects of experience. But the, the, this, the sense of dukkha here doesn't end. And so it doesn't give an answer to that question of what the end of dukkha means. But the two arrows teaching, or the two darts teaching, does do this. This is, uh, again, understanding dukkha as reactivity, pushing away the unpleasant, and also grasping after the pleasant. So again, this slide will be in the chat, and you can uh, download it or, not, or just uh, get, get it as a, a PDF file there. And so... This teaching is brought out also in one of, you know, perhaps the most fundamental teaching of the Buddha, and it's brought out in a pretty clear way in the teaching called Dependent Origination, which I'm not going to go into full detail, but I want to just give this because it's related also to the uh, guided practice we did. And so the teaching of Dependent Origination is a complicated teaching, which has... Uh, uh, the identification of 12 factors which basically keep dukkha going. And it basically 
goes into three broad categories. One is what we bring to experience. The second is what happens in experience. And the third is uh, the consequences of experience. And I'll talk about the second uh, fairly briefly. So basically we bring to experience in this model a certain level of ignorance about our own experience and especially habitual tendencies, habits, that particularly cause us to grasp after the pleasant and push away the unpleasant and think that this is the way for happiness, to get happiness. So let's use that second slide now, uh, Carlita. So this is the core of the teachings that make sense uh, in a different way of what the end of dukkha means, in a way that's pretty much the same as we found with the two arrows teaching, okay? So these, this is, I think, the um, sixth through the ninth of the factors, if I can remember, maybe the, maybe the fifth through the eighth, I forget. Anyway, this is basically saying with every experience, there is some kind of contact uh, through the senses. And in the model of the Buddha, um, thinking is the sixth sense. So we can have, uh, we smell something, we feel something in our body, we hear something, we think something. This is contact. So far, this is fairly neutral, it's just happening. Then on the basis of that, there's a feeling tone for our experiences. Let's say that I, um, I hear, I'm meditating, and I hear the, the loud sounds of a car. This is, there's a feeling tone, that's the contact. Uh, although it probably, the contact, strictly speaking, wouldn't have the sense of loud. So there's a feeling tone, and let's say I'm meditating, I want it to be quiet, the sound is unpleasant for me, right? And, um, you know, it could be uh, another experience of feeling tone might be, I eat, I have a bite of the strawberry ice cream, um, I taste it, that's contact, there's a pleasant feeling tone which arises, okay? And so, so far, this is just happening. And then the third step here um, is that on the basis of the feeling tone, I should, I should go back and say, there can, you know, that most of our feeling tones, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the vast, vast majority of them are neutral maybe 98, 99% or more are neutral. Um, and we mostly don't pay attention to those. When we're not aware, not mindful, and going by our habitual tendencies, we will tend to want the pleasant, and we will tend to grasp after the pleasant. Similarly, we will tend to not want the unpleasant and tend to push it away in different ways. So I have the um, uh, unpleasant sound, and I maybe um, maybe I uh, have a sense of you know I have my thinking. Why is that person revving up the car? You know why can't that person do it differently? And I I start having um, some negative thoughts, and maybe at some other point. I might, uh, in a reactive way, go outside and yell at the person. You know, that would be pushing away. 
And I'll just note a complexity here, which I'll come back to, that it's not so much the action that I take. It might sometimes be skillful to ask the neighbor to stop revving the car, but it's more, am I doing so in a reactive way? That's a complication, which we'll come back to, that sometimes my action um, could be skillful if I'm non-reactive. No, and I'll come back to that. In a similar way, I might, with the strawberry ice cream, really want it and then grasp after it, eat quickly, have a, a second uh, bowl or whatever. And again, it's not so much that it's a problem to be eating the ice cream, but that there's a tendency to grasp after the pleasant, right? Again, that, uh, that raises um, some complexities because... What is pointed to as the problem is more or less the unconscious tendency where we're more automatic and reactive in our uh, grabbing hold or pushing away. Sometimes the movement from contact to grasping or contact to pushing away happens virtually bam, bam, automatically, right? Someone says something, again, I think is nasty, I react right back. Now... The reason that this teaching is pretty similar to the teaching of the two arrows is that it's pointing to the tendency with the pleasant to grasp, to be reactive, and the tendency with the unpleasant to push away. This is, you know, sort of generalizing the two arrows model, particularly focused on the unpleasant. But this, we could say, is we can focus both on grasping after or pushing away the unpleasant, but also grabbing after the pleasant. So it generalizes to really to two forms of reactivity. And this is, this is really, really crucial. So we can let go of the slide now. And I would say, I'll, I'll unpack the teaching a little bit, but this is, in my view, the center of the entire teaching. It's the core of 2,600 years. And it basically says that the end of dukkha is the end of reactivity. You know, that's a very, very high aspiration, right? But it also points to that our practice can be to be aware of reactivity and work with it. That we can work with the different forms of reactivity. And it can be helpful to mention just some of the forms that reactivity takes. You know, what are some of the forms of grasping? Well, we can point to all sorts of things. Uh, in Tibetan tradition, it's said that objects have feathers to make them look prettier than they really are. <laughs> so we grasp after them. You know, that, that's a, a saying in the Tibetan. Uh, so what do we grasp after? You know, we grasp after, anyone grasp after food at all, ever? <laughs> okay, uh, about half of us, okay. Uh, half of us raise their hands, okay. So obviously we grasp after all sorts of food um, in different ways at times, right? And, you know, probably for most of us, it may not be overly harmful, maybe for some of us, it, it can, there can be problems where it can approach at times having 
addictive qualities. You know, there was an interesting author who wrote a book in part on addiction, Johann Hari, uh, a British author, H-A-R-I, and he said that the nature of addiction is craving for temporary pleasure, craving and grasping for temporary pleasure that we can't give up that has negative consequences. That's the core dynamic of addiction. So you can see that some of what we're talking about is in that territory. Again, the, the negative consequences can be minor or they can be, they can be major. So we also may, what else do we uh, grasp after? Maybe different kinds of comfort, right? You know, um, an experience probably that many of us have had is that of traveling to countries which have uh, maybe less comfort than we're accustomed to. Now, how many people have gone to a place where there's less comfort and noticed yourself grasping after the comforts which you don't have in this new place? Anyone had something like that experience? Or could be, you know, maybe even going and visiting um, a friend or going, going and, and visiting. So we can get, um, we can get um, sort of uh, in the pattern of grasping after comfort. We can get grasp, we can grasp obviously after people, after relationships, after certain experiences. We can um, grasp after looking good, having a certain self-image, all sorts of things. And again, I'm going to come back and, and mention that we can grasp after things. And the problem that the Buddha is talking to is not necessarily the content of what we grasp after, but it's the fact of the grasping and the fact of the pushing away. And that is a complexity. And again, I'm going to come back and look at that in, in a few moments in some depth, because it doesn't mean that whatever we're wanting, we shouldn't want. But it's pointing to the quality of it. Is there grasping? Is there craving? Is there, is there pushing away? You know, we can also ask, what do I, um, what are some of the unpleasant experiences which I push away, which I don't like? And again, we can go down a list and mention, um, you know, obviously, uh, unpleasant physical experiences, uh, pain, uh, certain emotional experiences. We may, we may uh, be reactive when we feel anxiety or when we feel um, anger or grief and so forth. And again, there are complexities here because this is not to say that we shouldn't want to address the situation, but it's the reactivity that's, that's there. Maybe, maybe I'll just broaden this and say, um, you know, just to give a, a more relational example, because what I'm going to be doing in successive weeks is talking about this, how this looks in terms of individual experience, how this looks in terms of our relationships, being with others, our relational experience, and how this looks in terms of our more social and collective experience. So just to give an example, uh, that shows the work we're going to be doing is that let's say that uh, again I have a difficult experience with a coworker. Okay, and I'll, I'll give an example which I often give because it's a simple one. My coworker doesn't keep an agreement that the coworker made. Okay, 
and I become very reactive, and I talk to the coworker from a reactive place. Is it going to go well? <laughs> Probably not. You know, hard to say. You know, if the other person is a Buddha, it might go beautifully, <laughs> right? But it's unlikely. Most likely, reactivity will be met by the other person's reactivity, and we'll get in a reactivity cycle, right? Something like that. That's more likely. And so, but um, looking at that situation, it's not that I want to stuff my noticing that the person didn't give, don't, didn't keep an agreement, right? From, from a practice point of view, what I want to do is see if I can work with my reactivity so I could then talk to the person in a non-reactive way and still bring up the issue. Uh, so that, that's one way of getting complexity. Maybe another example that I work with a lot when I work with transforming the judgmental mind. Let's suppose um, yeah, I'm really judgmental of um, something that happened, let's say a social justice issue. And I get really judgmental about you know, what, um, what happened, right? And I get really reactive. Arguably, my reactivity might not help the situation, but I want to keep my insight into injustice, right? And so I, for both of these examples, I might be able to do some inner work that transforms the reactivity, that ends the dukkha, and preserves the insight related to the injustice or the insight related to my coworker not keeping the agreement. And the, you know, to talk about how to do that is something I'll, uh, I'll probably look at more in more detail next week. But does that make some sense? That's the complexity with all of this, that a lot of times I get really reactive, but I, as it were, I have, you know, there's something to say. There's something connected with my reactivity, which is valuable. So I don't stuff it. I don't stuff the reactivity. That's why the language that I want to use is we don't, simply stuff the reactivity, but we transform it. And the transformation permits me to keep the insight or what's of value connected with the reactivity, as in my two examples, but end the reactivity. That's the formula. You know, transform the reactivity using different tools like mindfulness and some other tools, heart practices, and then separate out the reactivity from the insight and use the insight for the purposes of compassionate action. That's the formula for our practice. I would say that's the heart of the entire Buddhist tradition. That's the heart of 2,600 years of tradition. Also, I think very importantly, and I think my examples brought this out, that is the core teaching that can not only guide our individual practice, our meditation practice and our working with our own mind and heart and body, but it also very significantly can guide our relationships and it can guide our activism. I would say that the interpretation of nonviolence by Gandhi and by Dr. King 
actually come very, very close to the teachings about not shooting the second arrow. And, and so I would say that this teaching about ending dukkha can be a guide for our individual practice, our relational practice, and our social practice. And I'll be, I'll be unpacking that more. So let me finish my, uh, my talk by then talking about what are some ways to practice and what are some ways that we might uh, practice in the coming week. I hope, uh, I hope that many of us will be interested in working with this teaching and practicing in the next week. And then come back next week and we can compare practices. So what are, what are some ways of practicing? I'll just give a few and then I'll give, probably give more next week. Okay? So let's see. Um, so the first is uh, to assess the level of reactivity. I gave some of this guidance in the guided meditation. Assess the level of reactivity and that helps to know what to do. I like to use, as you know, many of you know, a scale of 1 to 10 like the Olympic divers and we, what we want to uh, determine is whether the reactivity, the grasping or the pushing away, is something that we can be aware of with our mindfulness such that it's workable or whether it's too intense and it's too much. You know, and if it's the latter, then we want to do something which brings us back to balance from the reactivity. So the first thing is clarify the level of intensity and know whether it's workable. Second, if it's workable, if it's, well, I should say if it's not workable, do something which helps bring you back to balance. Take a walk, do something physical. If you, it's, you know, if it's, um, you know, do some heart practice, bring some kindness, some compassion. Could be different things. Talk to a friend, all sorts of things. Um, talk to a teacher. Um, and then if it's, if it is workable, then the second practice is bringing mindfulness to reactivity. We did some of that in the guided meditation. You know, the invitation there, and you could do this practice in, the, uh, in your own practice. Look out for the pleasant or the unpleasant when it becomes of moderate level or greater, and it's, and it's still workable. Because as we saw with the model of the movement from contact to grasping, if we're not being aware, we will very naturally tend to go from contact to grasping or pushing away, right? We will tend, when there's something unpleasant happening, I will tend to go to contracting, pushing it away in my body, in my mind, in my thoughts, whatever. If it's pleasant, I will tend to go to grasping, sometimes really automatically, sometimes I'll hang out with wanting, right? And so we can explore that in our own practice. We can explore, can I just be with the pleasant? Can I just be with the unpleasant? And see if I can be with the first arrow without shooting a second arrow. And then notice also if I shoot the second arrow and see if I can bring it into mindfulness. 
we can be mindful of reactivity. You know, I think we, we all know this. I can be mindful of my mind getting very reactive. You know, maybe not 100%, but I can notice it some. So the second is to be with the, I can be with the um, experience of shooting the second arrow or shooting the reactivity. A third support for practice is remembering the teaching. Remembering the teaching of the two arrows. When I work with people and they're going through, let's say, a difficult experience, the most common guidance I give is, you're having a difficult experience. Watch the tendency to sh watch out for the tendency to shoot a second arrow. So that could be another way of practicing. Remember the teaching. I had something difficult happen, small or large. Let me know that it's predictable that I'll tend to shoot the second arrow. And let me look out for that tendency, see if I can bring mindfulness to it. And then maybe the last one I'll say is if you're with the reactivity and it seems helpful, you can bring a sense of kindness or compassion, especially with what's, hap what's happening is difficult or painful. You know, and one very simple practice for self-compassion, which um, I think I've sometimes given here, comes from uh, Kristen Neff. Very simple practice. We can do it actually right now maybe to, maybe to end. Or maybe I'll say one more thing after that. Um, the practice is, let's say something difficult is happening. Num step number one, acknowledge that it's difficult. And maybe right now think of a, you know, a kind of moderately difficult experience maybe from the last day or two. And I say to myself, something like this is difficult or this is painful. That's all. And then the second step, acknowledge that it's part of the human condition to experience this. Other people experience it also. That's the second step. Third step, give yourself a kind word of some kind. You know, yeah, maybe, you know, remember, okay, this is hard, but it'll change. Can I be as skillful as possible with this challenging experience? Something like that could be the third step, okay? So that's, that's a, a further practice. And the last one I'll name, then we'll, then we'll open things up to discussion, is when you're working with reactivity, sometimes there'll be that complexity I named of there being something valuable that's there for you. And so you can sometimes do a very simple practice of being with what's painful, noticing the reactivity, and then ask the question, something like, is there something valuable here that I want to separate from the reactivity? That's one way to ask it. You can maybe use your own language. You know, if I'm, um, you know, if I am going back to the example with my coworker, 
and I'm getting really reactive. I, that person didn't keep the agreement. Blah, 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 blah. Always does that. Blah, 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 blah. And then I can ask myself, is there something valuable or positive that I want to separate from the reactivity? And I can say, well, yeah, it's it's important that we keep agreement. So I want to I want to bring it up in a non-reactive way. Maybe, maybe it comes out like that, or maybe you just say, no, that wasn't right. You know, and I want I don't want to suppress that. I want to remember that. You know, something like something like that. Or same thing with my example of uh, noticing injustice. You know, you know, um, you know. Is there something? Is there something valuable that I can separate out eventually from the reactivity? So that's another. That's another maybe fifth way to practice. So let me offer those, and then let me end. I'll I'll end with. Uh, let's see. Let me see if I can find this. I'll end with uh, the Buddha, uh, a passage actually from the teaching of the two arrows. I'll, I'll end with this. An uninstructed person feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of that are neutral. <clears throat> A well-instructed Disciple also feels feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neutral. What difference, what distinction is there between the two? Here it is. When touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats the breast, becomes distraught. And that's, that's shooting the second arrow. So that person feels two pains, what the Buddha calls physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterwards were to shoot the person with another one, so that person would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with a feeling of pain, the, uninstruct, the uninstructed person um, feels two pains, both physical and mental. What happens to the well-instructed practitioner? when touched with a feeling of pain, does not, uh, does not become distraught. So that person only feels one pain, physical, but not mental. Just as if they were to shoot a person with an arrow and right afterwards did not shoot the person with another one, so that person would feel the pain of only one arrow. So that's the original text from 2,600 years ago, which I think now on the basis of our looking, we can understand that. So let's let's sit quietly now and then we can have some discussion together. And just see what is there for you, what seems important for you, any questions you might have, sharing of a story, just see what's there for you.
Right, so let's open things up now if there's if anyone wants to ask something or share something. Could be a request for clarification, a question about the teaching, maybe looking into that complexity of how something valuable gets mixed with reactivity. Anywhere anyone wants to go. And I can, you can either do the raised hand function or if you have your video on, I think I can see everyone. You could also, if you, do, if you don't want to appear, you could uh, put a question into the chat and send it to Carlita. Yeah, please, looks oh, like. Beautiful. Yeah, I see some physical hands are being raised. Yeah, it looks Stella. like uh, uh, Stella first, yeah. Okay, great. Stella. Are you able to unmute yourself? Okay. Um, I'm kind of shaking from the teaching from today because it is so, um, speaks so strongly to my own situation yeah. and cute and it's I even hesitate to bring it up because it feels so huge mm -hmm. but basically I'm um, I'm trying to heal um, at age 80 from a long-term uh, abusive relationship mm. both verbally abusive and financially abusive. And, um, oh, of course, a very painful divorce and horrible that came out of it. So the, the, the question, I guess the thing that I would like to put forward, yeah. that maybe um, I think would <clears throat> could help other people at this time, is that, I find myself swinging back and forth in some endless way between blaming myself mm -hmm. for the amount of time I spent in the relationship, the attempts to, um, um, I think that what, what helped me, what was closest to what you're, what, this teaching has been around is the fact that I've been very steeped in the uh, philosophy and practice of nonviolence for a long time. Yeah. And so I appreciate your mentioning that Donald, because mm -hmm. it helped me understand that part of, yeah. of what I'm going through. And so I try to apply that to a situation with someone who wouldn't, it turns out, never be able to um, heal thinking I could help in that. So I go back and forth between that and um, I, for me this is a stunningly important teaching that I hope to continue uh, to learn more about but right now I'm kind of shaking from it yeah. because um, I because of my background in nonviolence I understand the part of non-reactiveness but Yet somehow, I am I am reactive, uh, either against my my second arrow is pointed at myself. Yeah, yeah. I guess we would say. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Thank Thank you, Stella, for being willing to share that. It's It's a lot, obviously, and um, 
Yeah, but, but I think you're you're getting that this teaching is like I say, I think it's right at the center of the whole tradition. And it's the core teaching. And and so it can be a guide and you know, the link with nonviolence, something you know, something bad has happened and you know, look at the teachings of Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day and others. They would say, you know, we're responding to something that's not okay, and we will both uh, respond forcefully, and we will not, uh, basically, I would say we will not shoot the second arrow. They, they didn't use that language, but it's pretty close to that. We will respond in a way which doesn't inflict pain on others, you know, uh, deliberately. And so... Um, that can be a guide, and, and yet, in terms of level of intensity, it's helpful, this is where one of those guidelines, it's good to know that what you're working with is, would you say it's uh, beyond 10? <laughs> it's up there, right? And so just to know that the level of intensity is very high, and sometimes it'll just be too much. And so... I think uh, a few things. One is to, this is where holding yourself with a lot of compassion and kindness is really, really crucial. Maybe I imagine you already have an ongoing heart practice, but that would be, I think that would be really, really crucial just to, that, that's, um, that's a complement to the practice of working with the, the second arrow. And then, you know, I'm saying this partly for others as well, but it's, it's really helpful to know that the dynamics of shooting the second arrow are pretty much the same with level 3 intensity and level 10 intensity. They're pretty much like the dynamics of the two arrows or the dynamics of contact to grasping. What that means is that we can keep practicing with things that are not so intense and learn from them and keep learning. And sometimes, you know, it's very hard to work with the level 10, but you can work with the level 5 when it comes up and keep on learning and deepening in the core teaching. That, that's something quite important. You know, that we, you know, if we just bring out these practices, when they're thing, I'm not saying you're doing this, but when things are really hard, actually the learning will probably be less. We want to bring it out all the time. Bring it out with, uh, you know, um, I don't know, with, with telemarketers. <laughs> you know, bring it out with uh, small things, you know, that are fives or sixes. And, and so, and then I think also to remember that, you know, I think as you're doing by remembering the teaching, that um, the reactivity is understandable. It's coming out of pain. You know, I often think of being blaming and judging as a kind of defense mechanism to cover over the pain. So you can know that and that it's happening. And if you, have, if you work with this practice, over time it can be a guide to uh, both healing and transformation. But sometimes it's most valuable just to stay with giving yourself compassion and kindness. There can be cycles. You know, you're not always going into what's difficult or painful. So you could probably talk longer about that, but I want to make a little room for others. So thank you, Stella.
Okay, was there another hand up? Looks like uh, Vivian, please. Yes, Vivian, I'm looking for you. There you are. Oh, okay, there. Okay, um, I want to try to keep this succinct. First, um, Stella, I want to say thank you for allowing me to witness your vulnerability. I know what that feels like, and it has recently been of great help to me in another group, in another situation. I wasn't even asking for anything from the group. I just needed to say my piece, and the fact that everyone heard me meant so much, so I really heard you. The other thing, Donald, is that the way that you framed the four meanings of dukkha was perfect for what's been on my mind lately. Mm. I have, um, I've, I am in a worse disability situation than I've been in a long time. So I'm spending a lot of time in bed and I'm listening to talks on Dharma seed constantly yours and others. And I'm going back to 1974 even. Okay. So I've been hearing these three meanings of Dukkha and it starts hitting me. Wait, if everything changes, then you can't get rid of Dukkha. Because it's everything's impermanent. How am I? How are we going to have a solution to it? I think you said it much more articulately, but you went over that, and I was starting to feel like, uh oh, I better really tap into my doubt here, yeah. because if this is true that I have found an illogicality in in the Buddha's thinking, yeah. Yeah. then you know what else might be wrong and you and i've heard all of this before what you've said but the way you framed it today yeah. was perfect for my thinking uh, so thank you that's great yeah thanks thanks vivian and thank thanks also for acknowledging uh stella you know it's 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 a lot and i appreciate that you know uh but but yeah it's uh you know my understanding i think probably only got fully worked out a few years ago and I struggled with, you know, what is the Four Noble Truths? You know, what is the end of suffering? What does that mean? You know, and, you know, also working with the complexity because I came into doing more teaching coming out of socially engaged Buddhism. So I was asking questions like, okay, um, are we trying, what are we trying to get rid of here? Does the teaching say that we should just open up and accept things that are painful or what's going on? So there was a certain amount of confusion in the teaching. And I think for me, this understanding of the multiple meanings that are in the text really brought me a clarity that I hadn't had before. And that I actually, you know, I tried to share this with others, but I, you know, um, uh, I often hear others uh, not having that clarity. So, you know, the core teachings don't always make sense unless you make sense of these multiple meanings of dukkha and go for the one that is most central. Yeah. Thanks, Vivian. Yeah. There's someone who has something short. I probably could go with that, but um, otherwise we will, we're close to finishing up. Anyone else before we go? Okay, why don't I finish up by summarizing the ways of practicing that I mentioned at the end, and then invite you to have a little, you know, a minute or so quiet time to see where you're drawn. So I mentioned a number of ways of practicing. Clarify first the level of intensity, 
on a scale of 1 to 10. If it's too much in a given moment, overwhelming, not workable, have a way of coming back to balance. If it's workable, then bring mindfulness. Be mindful of the experience you're having. It could be really looking out for, like we did in the guided meditation, for the pleasant and unpleasant and just being with that. Be noticing what the experience of pleasant or unpleasant is. Noticing if there are tendencies when the pleasant or unpleasant is, is there to be reactive and either the form of grasping or the form of pushing away uh, more compulsively and automatically. Be mindful. Study it. Study it as it appears at the level of the body, at the level of emotions, level of thoughts. If helpful, bring in some compassion and kindness. as in the three-step uh, Christian Neff self-compassion practice. Remember the teaching, another guideline. Remember the teaching of the two arrows when there's a difficult experience. And just say to yourself, it's very possible, very likely, that I'll have tendencies to be reactive. Guide yourself in that way. Let me look out for the shooting of the second arrow. And then lastly, when you notice reactivity, it could be later in reflection or sometimes in the moment if you're balanced enough, also ask the question, is there something valuable here that ultimately I want to separate from the reactivity? As in my two examples of noticing an agreement wasn't kept or noticing injustice. So those are the guidelines for practice. So take a moment now and see what calls me. Do I, want, do I want to work with these in the next week and what will help me remember to do so? So my invitation is to really bring this practice into the next week. How many would like to do that in some way? Yeah, that'd be great, really. And we can come back, compare notes, and we have a little more discussion time as well. And next week, I'll bring in, uh, we'll, you know, I'll do a brief review of what we covered, but I'll bring in further ways to practice with reactivity, probably emphasize a lot how do we separate out what's valuable from the reactivity. And I'll also bring in material more on applying this in relationships and interactions. So I'll be expanding what we've done, go a little further. And we'll close with the dedication of merit, very traditional way of ending a session. May our session have been of benefit to us, may be of benefit to those in our own circles, and then may the benefits extend beyond those circles, ultimately 
moving to touch all beings so that we wish may our practice, may our time together be a benefit to all knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much for your attention and wonderful to be with you. If you want to unmute and say, say anything. And uh, we also want to give a big shout out to Carlita. Yay, Carlita. So please unmute and you can. Sorry, Audrey. Yeah. Bonsoir, Audrey. Thanks for talking. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank thank you. you for class. Thank you. Thanks, thank everyone. You. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thanks again, bye, Carlita. Nancy. Thank you, Stella. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you, Donald. Have a good week. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, Donald. Wonderful, wonderful teachings. Yeah, thank Just you. wonderful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.